So how you doing, man? Uh, any better, couldn't stand myself. Well, hell yeah, right on. I, uh, I, I can already tell I'm an Arkansas boy, so uh, I figure we'll get along pretty splendidly in the same uh, uh, neck of the woods, so to speak, regionally anyway. Oh yeah. Well, hey man, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Uh, I had a couple of listeners ask if I would have you come on. So here we are. I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, so, hey, man, I uh, got a, a few things I'd like to talk to you about today. But, um, and I, I kind of know a little about you. I've heard about the foundation that you're involved with and began uh, and would love to talk with you about that. But, like, there's plenty of other cool things um, that I've read about you and that people have told me about you that, um, first of all, like, how did you get involved with jujitsu? You're a jujitsu black belt and special forces green beret. That's pretty unique combination. Pretty. Uh, so how did you get, get involved with jujitsu? Did it, was that after you got in the military or, or what? Um, actually it was, um, but, um, so I actually was in the army. Uh, my first enlistment was in 95 and, um, I was a whopping 145 pounds at six foot one. So uh, pretty much everything that I did um, and I was going around and I, my first um, um, duty station was at, uh, at Fort Hood. That's how I actually ended up in Texas. Um, so I was trying um, Cooksville one, Taekwondo, um, uh, <laughs> traditional karate, like Okinawan karate, um, Wing Sun, Wing Chun. I mean, every chunky monkey dough that's out there. Um, I was trying out and giving it and giving it a real shot. Um, and um, I'd be in there for like six, seven months. I'd train diligently like five, six days a week, you know, first to show up, last to go, because I wanted to give it an honest try. Uh, the... Uh, what ended up happening though is that if I found that I was paired up for sparring or whatever that be, that if there were like 180, 185 pounds, if they were bigger than me, then they won. And it didn't even matter about skill level or anything. It was just, you know, overpowered and strength. And, and so I was like, you know what, this ain't going to work and try something else. And so after about, uh, it's about five, yeah, the Wing Sun was the last thing I tried before. I tried uh, the Brazilian ground fighting, and they had us catching, like, paper yeah, for, like, reflexes. When, you know, you partnered up, some person dropping, like, a piece of paper, and you have to catch it before it falls to the ground. And so I was like, yeah, this is kind of a waste of my time. Not saying I'm, I'm too good for it, but I'm too good for it. Um, but it's uh, something I can do at home. I just didn't need to train at a dojo for that. And um, – so the person I started out with, um, it was actually teaching behind the bleachers of the rec center and still, uh, and there was those remember the old school blue fold out mats. Oh yeah. yeah. Those the gymnastic ones. Yeah. Th those are the ones that we used and we just kind of used the Velcro to keep them together. Every once in a while, one of us would get hit in the head with a basketball. Um, and my instructor was a blue belt 
Um, so keep in mind though, this is at the time, so this is 97. It was like, there was only one black belt in the state at the time. So that was Carlos Machado. What, and, state, uh, what state are you in at this time? Are you in Texas? Oh, yes. Sorry. Okay, I was in okay, Texas. Okay. Um, and so at that time, especially in this area, in the state, if you were a blue belt, you already had uh, like one up and you were legitimately sought after as a legitimate instructor. Because, I mean, it's two years more than what anybody else has. So you're already two years ahead of the, the um, um, ahead of the curve. <laughs> around that same time was when they were doing the um, uh, VHS tapes. If you bought like the whole series, you know, you get your black belt, you know, through the mail. It wasn't wow. even online. Um, but they literally had like two VHS tapes for um, uh, white belt, two for blue belt, two for purple, two for brown, two for black. And then you'd get like a you know, signed off certificate, you know, saying that you're a legitimate one. So people like to give, um, you know, the Gracie's, um, um, like shit for the, you know, the, uh, what's it called that? Not Gracie online, the, but their promotion system that, you know, they can get it online. But yeah. Carlson Gracie was doing that like a decade and so more even before that. Um, I don't know if that's something that's still practiced or not. I doubt it. Uh, but at the time that was, that was something that was kind of like popping up here and there. So I got in there and my, um, <laughs> I literally showed up cause this is all I had. One of the, yeah, it was a short sleeve gi. So it was literally like a black top, but short sleeve. And I had like the patches on there looking like Cobra Kai and, um, Walked in with my orange belt. So I was pretty and really, you know, and I earned it, you know, so, or at least I paid for it. So I'm going to get some use out of it. And um, I went with a guy named Peter Torres, who was a, uh, he was really strong for his size. He was about 125 pounds though. So I outweighed him by like 20 pounds. I'm like, finally, this is my time. I'm going to turn the heat on. I'm going to smash this guy. Nope. Literally went uh, five, six minutes with the guy rolling and he tapped me out with a just a very basic arm bar from the guard repeatedly and i just asked him like how how did you do that you know i mean this was like this is still at the point where you don't have any outside influences you don't have tv internet everything else it's it's literally just happening in front of you and it's it's like magic almost i mean somehow he got his body in position to hyper extend my arm and not even couldn't do anything about it there's nothing and he literally just said, I've only been here two weeks. It's the only thing I know. That was it. That was literally like where I was going to stick with it from that point on. And um, everything just evolved from there. I, uh, my entire, <laughs> I became so enthralled with the sport and so addicted to it that I just couldn't get enough. I was, um, I was driving up to Austin when I was living. So after I get out, uh, my, uh, my first enlistment, I went to, into the reserves. Uh, I was going to school down at, um, Southwest Texas state university in San Marcos. And I was driving about an hour and some change to Austin so I could train with that same guy. And, uh, so three and a half hours while I was going to school full time, you know, during the week was getting old. So after one year at the uh, Southwest Texas State, or now it's Texas State University, I, uh, I moved up to um, Dallas area, actually Arlington. I was going to school at UTA. And uh, yeah, it was, 
45 minute drive was a lot better. So it was a lot easier. And I ended up, um, you know, moving up to Arlington so I could train more with uh, Carlos Machado. And uh, I stuck with him for 13 years. Wow. So I was reading uh, online. Is, is that your connection to with Chris Howder? You've trained with him quite a bit over the years as well? Um, so the connection with Chris Howder was actually very strange. Um, I never met Chris until um, – six years ago six maybe maybe even five years ago we've known each other like the same circle of friends for decades but we never connected like i knew who he was and we had the same circles of friends going back very long time because i mean he's been in the sport since the you know mid 80s you know Mm -hmm. so he got his black belt the year after um so he got his black belt so he was like one year as a black belt and he got his black belt in 96 i started in 97 so just that he was you know getting his black belt i was starting out but um in comparison to most people this is um is my my dates go back pretty pretty far but we had the same circle of friends so it, it was really uh when we actually linked up it was um, the world championships in Vegas and um, we just couldn't stop talking. It was like catching up over 20 years of things that, you know, Oh, you were there. I was there too, you know, different things. And um, just the mentality, um, his integrity, those were the things to me that really, really stuck out. And um, in a modern sport where the tradition is already kind of hanging by a thread, um, the, the true meaning of integrity, you know, not necessarily loyalty, um, as long as your electronic funds transfer, you know, your, your paycheck's making it for tuition every month. We're going past that as in, um, someone who developed a relationship with you over a year of training and you have a mutual respect as a student and a, um, as a teacher student and vice versa, that's, the loyalty that I'm talking about, not necessarily with money. And um, he has a, um, a very, it's unshakable in, integrity. And um, that was definitely the, uh, the missing link, I think, that I was having with uh, everyone that I had in the past. It was, they're good people, don't get me wrong, and I'm not saying anything negative, but, uh, that was definitely something that stood out as a um, um, as that one one thing to kind of get me um, locked in, basically. And so I just I, I honestly now uh, have that uh, bond with him um, through jujitsu, and I'm good. I'm staying put and you know combat base and staying under Chris. Um, he's just yeah, great instructor, a great guy all around. So it'd be easy to stick around. And he, you know, I've never, I've never met him either. It's kind of like with what you're saying. One of my really good friends, Jack Toffer, is pretty good friends with Chris, and um, they've done seminars together and um, have trained together a ton. Jack was out in LA, but uh, he was uh, recently on one of my instructors' podcast here in Arkansas, um, 
but you know, it's just like the same thing. I've never got to be on the mats with him. Um, actually, you know, I think I might've been on the mats with him at, when Hickson was promoted. I don't know if he was there or not. Hmm. I was, he might've been. I was at that seminar. I was okay. So I was drilling with Hickson when that went down, he was like using me to show and I like look up and I see all like the, the royalty basically and i'm like oh what, what's going on here oh that's fabio santos and oh pedro sour you know it was just a who's who walking walking down the aisle so it was but it was a super surreal experience but there were so many people there uh eddie five jack that it was just like people i'd run into and knew and was catching up with and it, it was an awesome event but it's like what you're saying you know i've now I've I've talked with Eddie Fivey several times, but that was the first event that I met him at, you know. Yeah. So, but man, that is um, that is awesome. Jiu-Jitsu forges awesome relationships like that. Yeah, you made a remark on competition, like sidebar on that. Like, what are your thoughts on competitor jiu-jitsu? Um, not to be difficult, but. What aspect are you talking about? Like, like, I, like IBJJ. Okay. You know, but like, okay, you kind of mentioned like tradition versus, I mean, yeah. this is the narrative that, that I've heard a lot of people from the generation of guys we're talking about and beyond make remarks about. I've competed quite a bit in IBJJF and over all the belts. And um, man, now I just like doing all subs and stuff so like i like i like competition rules less i like training for the i mean i train people i still have students to compete myself i own an academy but my views on it have changed quite a bit over the years so i i'm always interested in getting somebody's perspective on that um so i started competing uh, ibjjf in 2000 um, I was a blue belt. My first competition was the Pan Ams they had in uh, Orlando, in Florida. Um, and this is when the there was like two major, you know, tournaments a year, and you had to fly to them. And neither uh, they were in California. Most of them were in California, and then every once in a while they'd have them at different various places. Um, but they weren't like uh, like Masters Worlds. Now every year it's in Vegas. Um, mm. If you're going to go to Pan Am's, it's going to be in Long Beach. It's at the Pyramid. They're not doing yeah. that anymore. Um, or excuse me, they're not doing it where they're moving around anymore. Um, kind of missed that. But um, so the way that the sport has evolved in uh, IBJJF is, I guess my the only two issues that that really kind of get me. Uh, wrote me wrong with the IBJJF is one uh, the organization itself there's there's a few things that I feel could be done differently um, but you can't really expect much to be done as long as it stays as it is um, and in the aspects of it's a privately owned uh, entity so and it's they're not hiding it it's not something that's you know they're being sneaky about but there is no board that's you do it our way or leave that's it and um i i think um well my opinion on it is they have um it's not necessarily the people 
or excuse me, it's not the organization, it's the people that make the tournament. So you could say you have the best in the world at any tournament, um, and that would promote it up. For the longest time, there were, you know, you had to pay to get in. And in the last 10 years, uh, maybe a little bit less, uh, that's changed. And I think that's great because it's giving, you know, where they had the monopoly on it. Um, a lot of people don't believe me when I say this, but you can ask people, especially in like if you're American competing at the 2000 uh, Pan Ams in Orlando, you had to stand in line to get your weigh-ins. They had two scales for Americans or non-Brazilians. Well, segregation. And you had two scales in a separate room for Brazilians. Those guys never waited in line. We waited in line. I waited in line that day, that year for like nine hours. I'm not kidding. And there was like, there was a couple of fights because uh, people were trying to cut in line and people been kind of standing in line for four hours already. So it, it was very disorganized, very expensive. Um, and it was, it was blatantly obvious that there was bias. Um, uh, but I understand, you know, they're growing and so forth. The, the, the issues that I have now more than anything else is um, like, for example, if you want to go coach there, or you want to get your certification for the rules, they'll have that. So I was going every year, you know, even though it's good for two years, go just go over there every year, make sure that you have an understanding how they, you know, they're, they're applying the rules this year and mm -hmm. you're caught up, something changes or they have like questions and, you know, I can bring it up. Well, the last one I went to, they had it in, they had two rule changes, major ones in like January. And in June and in August, they added more. So they added like a couple more in June, a couple more August. Well, if I just did the rules meeting in January and you're changing the rule set within the same year, well, what's the point of doing all this? Because now you said that this is the rules, but you're changing halfway through the same year. You're not saying it's taking over next year, but they did some serious rule changes. For example, you know, white, white belts weren't allowed to wrist lock anymore. Um, but they could do um, uh, esteem locks. So they're trading one for the other. And they did that literally in like a, it was like a June, August type switch. It was about four or five years ago. Mm. Um, and then the, the referees that they have, they're not on the same page either. So it doesn't seem like, like what I'm saying holds a lot of, uh, you know, it doesn't really hold water for that until you think about what it takes to get there. So it's a private tournament. That means you're paying for your own flight. You're paying for your hotel. You're paying for your travel. You're paying for your food. You're paying for the tournament. You're paying for your membership. And then you get there and according to the rules meeting that you had attended, they said this is legal and then it's illegal and you get disqualified. And there's no way of, of contesting it. It's a private organization. So take it or leave it. Um, the way that referees were uh, intimidated, you had guys that if you're going to be wrong, be wrong with confidence, the way I say it, you know, um, but it, <laughs> Make sure that you understand that, okay, I messed up here. This is what I should have done. Learn it, move on. But uh, make sure that you have uh, a good understanding of what you needed to do 
and move forward, understand you, you made your mistakes and then be done. So, um, and again, it's everyone's saying, oh, it's individual, it's not the organization, but I've seen it way too much where it is, it's the organization's uh, employees. And if it's happening widespread, then it has to be the organization because they're the ones that's setting the standard. So that was probably my biggest thing is, is the, you know, refereeing, intimidation by the referees, uh, or excuse me, from like, for example, we had a guy that was a blue belt, got a guy in a, and it was actually a really good knee bar. Um, well-known, uh, very well-known, you know, famous jujitsu fighter comes out and, you know, tells him, no, that was a sweep. That wasn't a knee bar. And the guy's like, uh, really? But it looked like an e-bar. He's like, no, it just looked like an e-bar. And he tapped from an e-bar, but it wasn't an e-bar. It was a sweep. So he drops down the other guy's hand, raises up the other guy that got disqualified, and he ended up going into the next match, next match, ended up winning. There is no contesting that whatsoever. And again, not a big deal. Move on. Okay. But when you're spending $3,500 to get there, and then you get screwed over or something like that, and it's not the first time, it's happening over and over again, that's where I feel that, that you know, it, it really starts to have an impact and it's been happening so, so often and they've kind of been brushing it off so much that their empire is starting to crumble back down. Um, you have all these um, um, organizations like um, Seth Daniels set up the, the fight to win and it's a great way of, um, you know, um, putting the, the art itself on the podium. You know, where you don't have 20 people that you're, you know, shuffled around, you know, in a tournament. Um, and everyone's going at the same time. You have a referee that's looking over the other mat instead of that one, you know, all eyes on you. And it's a great format. Um, not that tournaments, every once in a while, terms, you know, could be fun. Um, you know, and that's the, the you know, the, um, uh, bad decisions make great stories, you know? So usually when you go to these trips, you know, ever since like 2000, we have some story of somebody jumping off the roof into a pool, you know? So it's not that it's not fun. Don't get me wrong. You, you know, we always find ways and always have good stories coming out of it. Um, but when you're talking about the IBJJF, the organizations specifically, that's where I find it's the biggest problems. The, the rule set, you know, um, not just changing, but, um, it's not even a show of, of the art itself. It's how well can you play the rules? Um, so now we're not, we're not only rewarding um, for the, um, say this without coming across the wrong way. We are rewarding for the mere attempt of a submission. So it doesn't have to be a submission where you slap it on. Okay, that's the win. Now it is if you try, you actually get advantage points. So once they see they're up on that, now it's how long can I, can I, can I bend these rules, manipulate these rules to my advantage where I can run the timeout? Mm -hmm. And it, it's just becoming more and more like that where it doesn't matter how you get there. As long as you're on top of the podium, that's what matters. And so that's, it's taken away 
my biggest thing was uh, my coaches used to get so frustrated with me because I didn't care about time. I didn't care about points. I didn't care about anything except the submission. And I, I, I wasn't a smart competitor, meaning I would have, I'd be up on points. Um, I'd have like seven seconds left and I am digging in for a choke. Like I will not let this go. And I end up getting the, the submission three seconds before the end of the match. And my coach that I had at the time was like, what are you doing? Yeah. You didn't need to do that. You didn't need to have this. You didn't need to have that. You know, you're already up. I was like, yeah, but I didn't win. And it's, it's one of those things where if you're not that, that mentality, you know, it's hard to explain. I'm, if I went on points, it's just, damn it. You know, yeah, I won technically, but not really. The win in, in my opinion is when they cannot continue anymore and you force them to submit in one way or the other. Um, I've actually had a couple of matches end with, you know, just takedowns, you know, they just landed wrong or um, I managed to do it really right. And timing was on my favor, um, cracked some ribs, whatever it might be. Um, or a knockout. I had one knockout in my, uh, it was uh, Miami Open in 2013. Um, I think I'm, I don't want to take the credit for the only uh, knockout submission or knockout win in a jujitsu tournament. But uh, so try to imagine this. I'm in, uh, in I'm inside uh, his, uh, his name is John Carlo Valdez from the uh, Dominican, really super nice guy, strong as fuck. Um, but he had this nasty half guard. And um, so I'm trying to pop my knee out and rotate in my hip. And I was trying to bring my arm over his uh, head so I could hook his shoulder so I could start weighing down that top arm. And just as I swing my hips and I rotate my arm, he sits up to get the, um, uh, his arm underneath mine. So as he raised up, I went down and I caught him with my elbow and he just went out. So I'm moving around and all of a sudden I just see his legs just collapse and he's not pushing on me anymore. So I'm looking over and I'm just like, whoa, he's out. Oh, shit. So I'm looking at the ref. Russ looking at me because what happened? So he looks down, and then he started coming too. And he's like, okay, I'm good. And we start going again. And I was like, cool, let's keep going. And the referee stopped us. He's like, no, he was already out. And so even though we were both kind of disappointed on that, um, I mean, kind of walked away laughing. But that was my knockout. Um, I actually saw him last year. Uh, went to Dominican with my wife and uh, went out there and, and we finished the match finally. So it took seven years, but we actually ended up finishing the match. So it went really well. <laughs> and that's awesome. You know, one year at uh, Purple Belt, similar story. Um, is what you were hitting on earlier. Pans, I competed and I had a guy in a straight ankle lock, right? And he like Turn and spun and tapped all in like one instance. And then I got, I got the DQ for a knee bar. Right. Mm. Right. But I was just like, I, I never, I, I never had him in a knee bar position. I never like applied hip pressure or anything right with uh, on that part of his leg. Um, and he really didn't even spin too well out of the ankle lock, to be honest, but there, Bernardo Patel is this guy that, um, 
I'm, you know, he's trained with him over the years, and he was there, and he's like, dude, you got the tap. Congrats, man. Great. And I was like, dude, I got DQ'd, Bernardo. <laughs> like, this sucks. But it was. I spent a, a ton of money, a ton of time, and that was that was a first round at Pans one year, and I was just like – and that's it. That's the end yeah. of it. So you get one shot at that, which again, single elimination, you're going in understanding. You know that. that. So there's no yeah. surprise. But that sting, it's not, it's, there's no, uh, you know, so for example, in judo, you have, you can, you know, raise up, you're like, I want to contest this. So they bring in two other referees, they look at the video and they make the decision off that. That blew my mind the first judo tournament I went to. That was, that was great. Yeah. So that, but that is the difference between a privately owned um, uh, organization that is for profit because they don't want to have contesting. So there are, are people contesting calls because that would slow things down and they're trying to push everyone through. That's again, why it's single elimination. If you do it more for the sport, you put more time into that. For example, you know, three referees or a board of referees that are actually there for specifically that. Um, you know, so this year, um, so one thing I can really appreciate is, you know, about, especially about judo is um, when they actually do the rules, it's done for like a decade and they have a board meeting and it's with all the people that are there, um, all the representatives from different uh, regions and they all have a say, it's a vote. Um, on top of that, it's it's not going to be like a surprise. Oh, by the way, last month they changed this. So you're not going to get a Shido if you, I don't know, cup the leg instead of grab the leg. So you can do that now. That would be detrimental to the sport. And they see that. Uh, Jiu-Jitsu is just overlooked. And, you know, especially in like those major tournaments, they're like, oh, yeah, whatever. But um, that's one thing I actually really like about judo um, is the uh, – and constantly pushing the pace. So there is no uh, no advantage. I almost got a throw, so I should be getting points. Uh, bitch, you fucking either got a throw or you don't. It's not like a halfway through, you know. That's bullshit, you know. I would make the comparison like, oh, I almost got a submission, but you actually do get credited points for almost a submission. Um, so uh, this year I actually uh, – Last year I had, uh, you know, half the year I was just dealing with um, surgeries. I had shoulder surgery in, in June. Uh, September I had neck surgery. Um, long overdue, but I've been trying to regain that. I was supposed to compete at uh, Judo Nationals in May and do this whole COVID thing. Everything got postponed. So I was supposed to actually be in Daytona. Um, but they postponed it and rescheduled. So now they're actually going to have it here in Dallas in Irving on the 22nd of November. So I think that'll probably be my only competition this year and trying to get back in the jiu-jitsu next year. I didn't even know that you were involved with judo. Uh, how long have you been training to judo? Uh, let's see. Um, I got my black belt um, from Sina Haddad um, to 2017. Two years. Um, I'd say about four or five years, but judo mainly for jiu-jitsu um it wasn't until like about the last two years that i got into it for judo judo for judo excuse me um and uh i got really fortunate um 
so the the guy I was training with, uh, Sina Haddad, he has uh, Ironside Martial Arts in um, in Bedford. Uh, he's about an uh, hour and 15 minutes away. So twice a week, that's three hours at a time, driving there, driving back. It just became very difficult to make. Um, and the only opportunities I had was twice a week. And so that was very difficult. So uh, locally, there's a place called Eastside Dojo, and they hired on a um, – uh, he's a, a bronze medalist in London for uh, his name is Niamotra Sandragal uh, from the Mongolian national team, but he took bronze in, in London. And um, for some reason, his style um, just really uh, fueled my want to be in judo. Um, it was much more aggressive. It's very unorthodox. Um, so it's not your typical kind of Japanese um, or um, Western style judo. Uh, it was very much uh, Russian influenced and Soviet influenced um, from uh, during like the leg grab time frames, you know, where they had a lot of uh, uh, whether it be like Mongolian wrestling or Sambo influence or wrestling influence, they incorporated that into it. And, uh, and I just, I got hooked and just being that white belt again, you know, it's that, that whole new feeling that you get, you know, that rush, you know, where you get to absorb more and you're like, oh, I'm a new fresh sponge, a little bit older, but yes, you know. Um, and it's a, it's a hell of a challenge. I mean, it's a, it's a very um, hard sport and, and not just the physical sense, but the technical aspect of it. Um, it's, um, it's simple or <laughs> it's simple. It's not easy if that makes sense, you know, so the end goal is very simple. We're just trying to put him on his back, but it's not easy because there's, there's so many different things that you have to keep in mind. You have to, you know, the timing and the force and then you have an opponent doesn't want to cooperate. Um, and a matter of fact, doesn't want to cooperate to the point where they actually want to do the same thing to you. But um, I'm really enjoying it. Um, I know my students are in my, in my place. They're really enjoying um, the judo aspect for jujitsu. Um, so it's, it's blending in well, it really is. Do you do, have you added like a judo specific class to your academy or do you just integrate it just for jujitsu? Um, so my, any one of my students, they know, I kind of like developed a reputation, uh, for myself. Uh, I used to actually punish anyone who did guard pulling. Um, so like if you pulled guard in class, 25 burpees, if you did it in competition, it was a hundred. Um, yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. Um, BJJ Eastern Europe actually put a, put a meme, um, with me. And the funny part was, is that they took the picture and yes, it was regarding guard pulling, but that was kind of like the funny part because you never know, but there's a kid asking me like literally, asking me for strategy points and he's like so i'm gonna pull guard i'm gonna do this i'm like you're gonna do what and they snapped the picture when i was like literally like you what did you say you said it right to my face and that's what i was mainly surprised about i was like are you, are you fucking with me are you serious you know i don't know what to do and uh that's when they snapped it and they had this whole thing about guard pulling and i was like oh man they caught me on that one but uh now, um, I haven't 
done that to um, punish anyone for it. Um, mainly, I think they, uh, I've become a bit more uh, articulate with my rationale, why not? Why, why do you not want to do this? Um, I think it's part of, you know, my, uh, my advancement as a, as a human and instructor, just Shabaro 6.0, as I like to call it, you know, as you know, the, the gentler, kindler Shabaro. So how, how you want to take that? I, I don't know how. Yeah. I, I, so the hard part was, was coming back, coming into teaching full time, being from a special forces background where you don't have any women, no kids. So I was using fucking shit as commas and periods, you know, and then not really having an understanding of the words that I was using um, with the context and with the people. So it was just a no filter type environment. And when you have everyone around you for years, that's in the same mindset. And then you come here and you have to watch what you say. Um, the first couple years were tricky, say the least. Uh, so I had to become more business minded. I had to, um, not be as strict with certain things. Um, and I was like super hardcore into this and I was still in the mentality of, you know, you fuck this up and you're fucking dead, you know? Um, which that's where I came from though is yeah. If you do fuck this up, then you are dead. That's literally the point, you know? So it was, um, it was a transition that was definitely needed. I admit it. Uh, it, it came a little bit late, but it still, it still developed into where, you know, I'm still around. I still have students. So I didn't lose too many. Yeah. I joke around with my students. Um, cause we had a judo program for a long time and now we just have, pretty much integrated to the BJJ class, but I joke, I'm like, guard pulls, you mean failed sacrifice throws? Right. So Chris, Chris likes to call it a tactical retreat. Uh, I still am not in there with it, but you know, it, it's, it's a, it's better than saying guard pulling. I'll tell you that. And he tries to hide it in like a Tomonagi. So it's a, yeah, I get it. It's not really pulling guard. There's some offense to it, but at the same time, I know what you're getting at. I know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, that is sacrifice. Those are even frowned on uh, by a lot of judo elitists I've talked to over the years is, you know, yeah. we don't do those here, you know? Yeah. So, well, man, uh, let, let me ask you this. At what point did you kind of go down the path of joining the military and, begin to fuse all this together into what we're seeing today? Um, so that happened actually in 2004. Um, so I was full-time into jiu-jitsu. I was going to school full-time. And after 9-11, I really, um, my own, um, my priorities changed definitely um i i was definitely in the mindset of um because my my first enlistment and you know being in the military for already at that time this was six years i uh 
uh, I'm, it was, there's nothing going on though. So that was the thing. It was being in the military, no war going on. So all you're doing is just training for no purpose. And now there was a purpose and I wanted to be part of that purpose. Um, the problem was, is that with my, um, my reserve unit that I was in, I already signed a contract literally in July for the current MOS, for the military occupational specialty, the job that I was in. And I just literally just re-enlisted for another four years or five years um, as a drill sergeant. And so they wanted to send me up to Oklahoma for two years to train more troops because there's an influx in troops during wartime. And I wasn't fucking having that. I, I was... <laughs> Um, I was a little shit about it. I was very, very belligerent, but, um, I was basically, if, well, if I'm not going to have my way, then you're going to have to kick me out, you know, then I can go my way. Um, fortunately there was a commander that was, that showed up, you know, country. Um, one of those guys that, um, still, uh, still use chaw, you know, the, you know, you're in Arkansas, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but he would literally have to dump out like his, uh, uh, his trash can like halfway through the day because it was like getting full. I mean, it was just bad. But um, he basically was able to give me a uh, um, a sit down and release me from the unit. And he was just like, listen, you fucked this up. You're coming back and you're going to give me double the time. I was like, it's fair. You know, no problem. Um, so I joined, uh, it was a National Guard unit in Mississippi because I had to do a lateral transfer due to the situation I was in. And I was driving out there, it was like eight hour drive one way. And they basically were trying to put me through a series of tests before they sent me to uh, SFAS, which is a special forces assessment and selection. So it's basically a gut check for three weeks, um, uh, doing different things, everything from different obstacle courses and um, different events. Um, that they, they, um, during team week and single events, and it's basically something where they're going to run you down a very high attrition rate just to kind of weed out everybody that's not supposed to be there. Um, been waiting for nine months. Um, I've kept going to the same drills, uh, kept proving myself, but the issue was they didn't have any dates. So I went to, uh, um, where was, uh, where I was training, I was training with Travis Luter at the time. And I was his uh, training partner. This is um, right before he got into like UFC and then he got into the ultimate fighter. So the manager for, uh, for him and Matt Sarah at the time um, was um, got actually uh, still involved with now he's an attorney. Um, and he only had uh, Travis Luter and Matt Sarah and both of them won the ultimate fighter. And then both of them actually had a, uh, a title shot. Matt Sarah ended up being GSP at the time. And uh, Travis didn't make weight. So that was, um, but they both got title shots. Um, yeah, I remember that. Travis Luter was like, um, didn't he have a pr bad problem making weight with like Anderson Silva? And like, was like. That, that was it. Yeah. yeah. That was a title shot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he was only like a pound and a half over or something like that. But he looked just, dead. Oh my god! Yeah, he I was so that. pale. Didn't he yeah. take his back in the fight? Didn't they fight? And he took his back, right? <laughs> he took him down and got full mount. Okay, full mount. And That's what it was. Just so she was so drained though. He just couldn't finish that out. Uh, very unfortunate, man. Because I mean, I was actually physically there 
for, you know, him, you know, getting ready for all this and yeah, uh, water under the bridge. But, um, so basically I, I was running out of money. I was running out of time and, um, I had to make a decision. Either I go pro in MMA or I go in SF. So I was literally like a couple of weeks away. I was trying to make the decision and I was, I was actually leaning toward going to MMA and, um, I finally got a call from the unit saying, okay, we got your selection date. You know, do you want to go? So now I had green light for both and I had a way in like what I want to do, you know, what are the options? So I ended up going to SF. Um, so there was uh 458, I believe that started in that three week selection process. Um, out of the, the 458, uh, 152 made it and then that lets you uh gives you opportunity to do the um uh, special forces qualification course which is the next part of it which is uh, you know uh, small unit tactics they have language training they have the seer which is a survival evasion resistance and escape um basically a series of schools that lasts on average you know depending on the language of course um, about on average about 16 to 18 months and if you're a medic and you have like a very difficult language then you could be there for over two years um so out of the people that were that when i started uh selection there was 158 out of that 158 that started the q course that actually graduated to get the green beret there was uh 31 of us so only 30 people out of the 458 after those two years of training. So now you can see like have an understanding of the attrition rate that goes through and how much time goes through on that. Um, but I got really lucky um, while I was actually in the Q course. Um, I noticed guys that were doing jujitsu and um, kind of jumped over there and just kind of helped them out here and there. And they ended up um, being in the unit that I ended up going to. So it was real, uh, uh, got really fortunate there. And what rank, uh, I got what rank really were you at this point in jiu-jitsu? Sorry. Um, so I got my black belt in 2004, September 2004. And I left shortly after that to uh, North Carolina. And I'm moving there. Um, so I was the only uh, black belt in the Army, I believe. Um, and I was the, uh, the first black belt in uh, special forces regiment history um so um ended up going to there and um so i ended up in a um it's a, a different type of unit than traditional special forces so the unit that i ended up going to um it was called a sif which is uh commanders and extremist force so um i was there initially as an assaulter um and then I went to advanced schools and shooting schools and sniper school. So I was a salter and a sniper um, for this unit, which is counterinsurgency and um, uh, counterterrorism, uh, where we specialize specifically in direct action and um, uh, hostage rescue missions. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's um, that's an incredible uh Pro, like what, what was some of the things about the process you went through to get selected? I mean, what, 
what was it that uh, i mean you make it seem like such an easy thing that you became a group i, I know you're kind of it's weird for me to answer questions about myself too and i didn't even do anything great but like you had to go through some serious shit to get to that point right like what was what was some of the physical mental stuff you went through um so like selection um which is the the first three week which is kind of like the gut check the first couple of days um they're yelling at you there you do log pt which is you see that very commonly on the beach you know with the seals they have the telephone pole they're bringing it over it's a very common thing um so we had that we had rifle pt which is you know you can imagine it's only like six seven pounds but you know after four hours it starts to weigh on you um different team events um and i think the team events um psychologically started wearing on you as well as physically because uh you had to so first thing you, there was no like learning a skill then dumping it um we learned a skill like orienteering where you learn how to read a map and a compass and that's how you get from point a to point b so they they teach you that you get tested on that you make that and then the the third part which is their team events you're you have the entire three weeks you have a ruck on you that's about 65 pounds uh with water and uh food and um they have checkpoints every once in a while where they wear it so there's there's no way that you can uh try to cheat your way of carrying a lighter weight and you're doing all these events you know the telephone pole different things like that and um the down pilot which is a duffel bag that weighs over 200 pounds and you have a stretcher and so you have to get that down pilot so you have to navigate your way there which is seven miles um and then you have the event itself and depending on what it is if it's a down jeep then you have to get a three-wheeled jeep um with maybe a, a pole and some rope and they give you certain things and you have to um um, basically figure out you know, a solution for it and what would be the easiest way to get it from point A to point B within this matter of time. So there's a lot of like mental strategy that you have to incorporate into it. And especially when you're already worn out, that's where it becomes very challenging. So seven miles there, seven miles to an event, um, or you know, five to seven miles, and then seven miles to return back. And you had two events a day. So yeah, one event, it's really not that big of a deal. But when you have one event after another, that's where you started having a lot of people drop out. And the, the, the part where people didn't realize that was going to really get them was we start out with 12 people and we're all carrying a thousand pound telephone pole. Well, distributed between 12 people, it's like 80 pounds. It's not that big of a deal. You can go for a while. But that telephone pole, that doesn't change once you lose parts you know guys of your team so you say you went from 12 people down to 10 down to eight that telephone pole didn't change that event distance didn't change so that's where a lot of people were losing a lot um and it was becoming drastically harder really fast um when people were trying to uh, try to understand that or didn't understand that and then went out and then like you know what you know, we'll manage this and they had a certain plan and they never changed it. And now they have eight people instead of 12. Well, it's not going to work the same. You know, you're going to have to, you know, it's going to take longer. You're going to have to shift the weights around. You're going to have a lead man, trail man, they're going to have to switch out. And then you have it, you know, some guys doing navigation. Um, 
so yeah, that was the, uh, you know, the stresses on there. Um, but yeah, and then once you actually got into the Q course itself, um, or actually after the first two days where they're yelling at you, it's called a gentleman's course. So they're actually not even going to be yelling at you. They're, they're in the wood lines 50 feet away and they're just watching from a distance. So if it's stress, then it's self-induced stress. It's not even because of them. Um, and they literally want to see what you're going to be doing on your own. So they test your integrity from the very beginning. So you have some guy that's a, you know, could be a stud and he's a shithead uh, to work with. More than likely, he's not going to make it because SF is actually the one branch where you can peer, you know, other members of your team out. So because they know the instructors can't catch everybody. So you actually have like a, a voting session at the end. And if you wanted to vote somebody out, that was the opportunity to do it. Um, but it was a vote. Um, and this plays true to a lot of different things. Cause if you can imagine, um, the, the primary job for special forces, um, is, um, making, so, um, let's just describe this probably the easiest way. Um, so basically the job SF goes into, um, uh, hostile territory, uh, enemy behind enemy lines and they're training um, foreign troops. And that's why they're called for force multipliers. Um, so FID missions are um, the, the most common things that you're actually going to um, do as uh, special forces soldiers. So if you're watching like John Wayne's The Green Berets, um, they're going in there, they're training the, the, the uh, uh, Montagne Yards. Uh, in Vietnam, which were like the tribal people, the and they teach them in guerrilla warfare, and they're force multipliers. So now you have 12 Americans, and you have 100 of the Montagnards that are fighting alongside with you. <clears throat> I never got to do all that cool shit. So foreign internal defense, the FID missions, I never got to do. Um, everything that we did was literally, um, you know, find a high-value target, kicking in the door, taking them in, and, and taking off. Um, pretty much 95% urban and about 98% night missions. So we owned the night, we had the advantage uh, technology, um, but it was a very, very small team um, that did hits um, very precisely um, and very methodically um, and very quickly to get in and out because on average we'd have 35 to 40 people going out, which is a very, very small element um, and because we have to move with speed, we can't carry a lot. So we were armed to the gills for what we got. Um, but we weren't, um, designed to stay in a sustained firefight for a long period of time. That's why I always had like overhead, um, I overwatched like, uh, uh, whether it be fixed wing or rotary wing, we always had support with a drone or helicopter or something of the sort above us in case the shit at the fan and we just needed to call in a bomb or something. Yeah, yeah. But okay. uh, the pulling guard actually came <laughs> from deployment. So my first deployment, 2007, so this is three years after I had uh, my black belt, uh, was doing a hit. And um, the first room we went into, 
there's always two men going in. And uh, so it got in there and um, got lucky. Had the guy they were looking for. He's about 160 pounds soaking wet. So I zip tied him and um, I was putting pressure on his hip from behind and shots went off upstairs right away. I looked over to my right and I saw um, the guy that was uh, my the guy on my team <clears throat> just making sure he was okay. And just had a reaction, the guy that I was pinning down. And keep in mind, I was a uh, an assaulter at the time, so I was weighing about 250 pounds. Um, and you went from had, 145 to 250 by this time. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. A big change. Um, I actually had someone that I trained with at Fort Hood that I saw again at Fort Bragg, and he introduced himself. And we trained together for like two years, but he didn't recognize me. <laughs> but um, that the um, that Iraqi that we had, uh, the Al Qaeda member was he, he bucked up, and uh, with my plate carrier, my my Glock, my shotgun, M4, full round mags, um, uh, breacher tools like uh, the Thor hammer and a Hooli tool, um, water, um, uh, explosive charges. I weighed probably about 320 pounds. So my knee, and I know how to move on the ground. So me doing like a, you know, like a knee on his, you know, shoulder neck area to keep him pinned down. I know how to move. I way stronger, way heavier. And when he bucked, um, all the weight that I had on me, um, I started to fall backwards. And so because I have like flashbangs that were, like right on my chest plate that they were held together with rubber bands because we need to go in there and go fast. So kick in a door and, you know, rip out a flashbang, which is like, uh, if you can imagine like shotgun shells inside of a, like a cylinder tube. Um, we had like nine bangers, which is imagine nine shotgun shells in there. And um, it was just held by rubber bands. We would just rip off the rubber band, pull the pin and throw it in. But, it's very easy if somebody has their hands tied behind and they could just rake across the chest line and pull a pin. Well, that would go off right under my, my chin and I'd be dead. So when he bucked, I was fighting as hard as I possibly could to try to get my balance back, to go back onto my knee and put pressure back down. And what felt like an eternity was literally like a split second. I literally just lost my balance and I just went back forward. But, that moment was um, it. It literally like petrified me. Um, I just couldn't imagine like how helpless I'd be, you know, on my back, you know, almost like a turtle on its back. And so, and all you needed, just even blindfolded, you know, with his eyes closed, he could just rake around it, and then he can find some pins to pull, you know. So that was the determining moment. Was this will never happen to me ever again, you know, and you get into these habits because of um, what you do the most, you know, so if you are intently, um, you know, using guard or pulling guard, well, when the shit hits the fan and you have to depend on what, you know, you're, you're going to resort to, to survive, do you want it to be with your back on the ground on concrete? you know, or jumping into that position, or would you rather be in a dominant position on top, you know, where 
you could steer the fight to where you want it to um, and be in control. Um, and especially with the amount of, amount of variables that happens in like in a self-defense manner, why wouldn't you want to be on top? And uh, I think that's where it kind of like encapsulated uh, Chris Howder's uh, um, methodology in mind was get on top, stay on top. You know, rule number two, refer to rule number one. <laughs> you know, so his entire mentality is the same way, you know, that, you know, get on top and stay on top. Um, and that, that was a very, um, it's a lesson that I learned that stuck with me for a lifetime that I don't ever want anyone else to go through. And most of the time I, at the, this is usually the, the, the format that I tell that story. And I usually don't even say it in class. Um, but that is actually the reason. So, um, if we're doing jujitsu and sports jujitsu on the mat and I never, and I, I maybe it's five, six years before I even get into like some type of fight. I don't even have to know MMA. I don't know have to strike. I just need to know that, you know, I'm that what I'm doing right now isn't going to put me in a bad situation starting out. So, you know, the first half hour of our classes, I'll take downs. If it's gi, then we're doing, you know, judo for jujitsu or, you know, variants on that. Um, if it's nogi, we're doing, you know, wrestling takedowns or maybe some, you know, judo variables for nogi, but, there's every night we're doing takedowns every night. Uh, um, and then we're going uh, 30 minutes on standup, 30 minutes for instruction. And then, you know, 30 minutes on average to roll. Um, but I had to design it in a way to where if I did have um, some athletes that wanted to compete, that this, that my methodology would not interfere with that. So and here's the funny thing about, you know, when I get into these arguments with, or I used to, I, I, I don't even care now. People say, oh, I pull guard. What are you going to say about that? Good job. Go, go and go out and do great things. Whatever you want to do. I, I just don't care. Um, if it's my athlete, I'll take the time to actually explain it. But, um, you know, even the IBJJF, which has these strictest standards, which they also have the, um, um, where the most common um, platform to ride the rules and pull guard um, is the IBJJF, bottom line. But even the IBJJF, they still reward you two points for yeah. doing takedowns. Now they're, they're trying to make it harder. I don't know if you noticed that the last few years, they even said, <clears throat> now it's takedown and you have to be in some certain pattern of control. <clears throat> you know, for three seconds, which is fine. Um, but I, and again, I think that's more to benefit the, uh, the guard pullers, but, uh, you know, I, it, we're just going in a direction to where eventually I feel, um, once they actually take away the two points for takedowns or they start giving awarding points for guard pulling is the day that I stop doing IBJJF entirely. Like, I won't even be part of the organization whatsoever or coach or anything. Um, as of right now, um, personally, the only thing I really want to compete in is Pan Am's worlds, maybe. Um, but, uh, I don't want to take away my, uh, my athletes choice if they want to compete. 
And so I'm trying to stay in good standing with them best I can and just bite my tongue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, man, let me, um, let's kind of r- wrap it up with this last line of questions. I do want to talk to you about the We Defy Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we, uh, do you know Matt Blank? Um, yes. He, he's um, out in Tucson. He's uh, just retired Air Force. I want to yes. say he's he's the very first person I heard um, mention your the foundation, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I watched the video uh, recently for the This Is Normal, and it would encourage anybody that's that's listening to this podcast to watch that because, man, just the the way those stories came across, like I developed a new level of empathy and in at least a couple of areas on just listening to that. It was like nine minutes long, right? Um, which I saw that on your website, but where does, uh, where does the name come from? Isn't that from a, a motto the we defy? What, where does the background on that? And how did you kind of come up with this and, and just the whole, whole shebang, if you can? Um. So uh, New Diffion is the, um, the motto for the, um, um, the SIF company. So um, you have B23, which was Bravo Company, 2nd Battalion, 3rd Special Forces Group. So at each group, they have that designated company. So there's only about like 80 or so operators in that company out of each group that has approximately 2,000. And... Um, uh, we operate in different theaters of operation in the world. So um, you have, for example, like first group SIF, which is uh, uh, Charlie one, one and uh, their operational uh, theater of operation is going to be in uh, uh, Asia. And then you have 10th group. And uh, so there's, is going to be primarily, well, they were set up for the cold war. So they were uh, primarily like in Europe um, and uh and uh, parts of the stands, you know, fifth group, which was um, mainly the Middle East, seventh group, South America, um, and Latin countries. Um, and uh, so We Defy was taken from, it's, a, it's actually a very um, um, bold, uh, abrasive statement that was, um, that was used from the, uh, the uh, French resistance fighters um, that worked along with uh, the OSS, um, we had the Office of Strategic Services and the um, uh, the Black Devils, which were the uh, the first special service force, um, which was the uh, basically where uh, all special operations derive from. The OSS is where the CIA and the FBI, or that's kind of FBI, but uh, intelligence operations came from the OSS um, after they were disbanded, and the um, uh, special first special service force. Um, was disbanded as well, and uh, the different military operations, special operations were created out of that. Um, so We Defy is the direct translation into English of New Defion. Um, and it's a very, like I said, a very bold statement, um, very uh, arrogant statement, you know, it's like in your face type, you know. Um, so Joey Bozic um, is the other founder, and uh, so he came in, he's a triple amputee. And um, so he came in my place and was looking for a place for his daughter to train actually. And uh, his daughter Violet was six years old at the time. 
And um, we got this talking for like an hour, an hour and a half, come to find out, you know, he was at Fort Bragg. I was at Fort Bragg. There was uh, one of the times he was in the hospital. He was actually like in the same, he was one bunk over from uh, one of the guys that was actually on my team. So small world. And um, so we got to talking and I was like, you know, did you ever do martial arts? You know, do you ever thought about doing it again? And um, that was the initial conversation. So a few conversations fast forward, you know, a few months. And um, it's like, hey, you know, I've never done this before, but if you're willing to be patient with me, I'll be patient with you and we can try to set something up, you know, and try to create things out of this because I mean, there's, there's, you know, vast amount of opportunity in this and you know and this is the probably the one of the few sports that you can literally um shape mold create um your own version and um so we started doing private lessons um just me and him just to get comfortable and just so i could understand what i'm working with because at this time i had um about 16, 17 years of, um, of teaching, coaching, and, and, but that's regular people, four limbs. Shit. Shit. Are you there? I, okay. Yeah, sorry about that. Can, yeah, you're good. I can still hear you. <laughs> um, so, um, so he came in and, um, a couple times a week. Um, and so I had the eight pages front and back kind of written up as like my notes when I was home trying to figure out, um, but the, the difficulty wasn't just in movements, but it was understanding where his base was, understanding where, you know, can he force, you know, off his legs because they're titanium rods and he's got the muscle flap on top of it. So if he pushes in a certain angle, it's literally like a rod that's pushing into his muscle. So he can't stay on it. Um, his left hand, he only had three functioning fingers and he can only rotate his wrist so far because again, titanium rods. His right arm is cut, um, was amputated right, um, right below his elbow. And um, so out of those eight pages, I literally had only two to work with. But with those two was the foundation for it, and we just kept going. So it took about six months for him to feel comfortable uh, after working one-on-one, -on -one, and he started joining the group class. And um, after the group class, then he was like, fuck this, I want to compete. And um, the one thing that I really respected is like he got into competition and kept the same goals regardless uh, of where his journey was taking him because he wanted to get into this strictly because like anybody else, self-defense, like the first thing. Um, but he was like, if I go against an amputee, well, what's the point of me doing this then? Because the reason I'm doing this is to test my skills if my family was attacked and my family's probably you know probably not going to get attacked by another amputee so i need to learn how to defend myself properly against an able-bodied person so he refused to you know go into any and not in a disrespectful way but in a way that they could comprehend like listen i'm doing this because i my main priority is to protect my family and myself and um, so he competed in IBJJF. He competed in um, everything he did is against other able-bodied people. Um, and the strange thing is even his very first competition, he was getting takedown points. Um, he, he racked up points, you know, where no one thought that was even going to happen. And then 
just out of nowhere, I was actually in Belgium teaching a seminar and he was competing that same weekend and he got his first win by submission and ended up being on the podium and I just couldn't be there for that. So but that happened in 2017. Um, you know, since then he loves jujitsu so much. Um, it's the only human being I've known doing this that loves the sport so much that he cut off 10 inches of his leg to make it even. So he had one amputation that was about 10 inches above the knee. The other one was at the knee. And he decided to cut off 10 inches of his uh, right leg to make it even with his left. That's dedication. <laughs> wow. But yeah. um, that's a, that, I've seen bad. him bust an incredible sit through, by the way. I assume he's the yeah. only triple amputee competing in IBJJFs, right? Um, no, actually. Um, or the triple amputee, yes. Uh, but there's another uh, double amputee, a single amputee. Um, there have been a lot more that actually, you know, I, I think the, um, um, the understanding that, you know, that they can, you know, and that someone has uh, can, you know, definitely motivate. And um, I think that was definitely a motivating factor. Um, but just around the time where he started feeling comfortable with the group classes is, is where we kind of like, it was literally in the corner in here. And um, he lost like 30, 38 pounds because um, he was just getting his chair and getting out. Um, and uh, his mental clarity was phenomenal. He got into a routine. He was, he had purpose in life again. And he was excited about coming to class because it's something for him. And it was something that he could do with his daughter. So that was, that was, that was huge for him. And um, we're like, well, wonder what else, like, you know, how many other people could benefit from this if they even just knew about it. And that's where it actually all spawned was, um, you know, just fried up a conversation on the mat um, after we just got done beating the shit out of each other. And, you know, <laughs> I wonder if anyone else want to get the shit kicked out of them, you know, but mm -hmm. um, we started realizing like how, how many different benefits if you actually, you know, take a step back and analyze it. You know, you have the mental acuity where you have to, you know, problem solve and, you know, you literally have to focus in and, and, and spend a lot of time and energy just understanding um, in a dynamic method, you know, the computations and the, the you know, the algorithms that you get into. And, and so there's, there's a huge mental aspect of it. And that in itself is what distracts you from your daily, everyday grind, you know, or the stresses that you have. Because, you know, just as well as I do, if someone's choking the shit out of you, you're not thinking about your bills. You're not thinking about your boyfriend, girlfriend or anything. You're thinking this monkey on my back will not get off and he's choking the living crap out of me. But in that moment, that's when your stress levels start to actually go down because you're not worried about the long-term shit that, that's been bugging you. You're just worried about what's in front of you. And that to me is, it, it, it was critical. Um, and then having something, you know, to go back to, um, and then the, um, the, uh, the release of, uh, um, hormones, pheromones that you, you release while that, you know, the, and then they there's another study about just human touch. Um, and, and so it was done for like, uh, uh, not yoga, but, um, it was a masseuse in Oregon that actually did a really good stu uh, study on it. And just because you're constantly pulling and have contact, 
um, there's a huge uh, uh, advantages to that as well in um, uh, trying to kind of reintegrate into the um, normalcy in a sense. Um, so the, the the physical benefits, of course, you know, you, you, you're you're doing something um, as a alpha male or female, you know, you're in that group where you have that same mentality and everyone has a certain goal and there's organization, there's uniforms, there's so many different similarities to, to military just in that sense. And then you have, you know, something that you can learn long-term. Um, it's going to be, um, yes, physically demanding. It's the best way I can put it. Um, but um, the one thing we wanted to make sure was that it wasn't, um, we wanted to have a nonprofit that wanted to provide solutions for the combat disabled veteran that was seeking to fix themselves. I know it sounds very simple, but it's extremely important. If you want to better yourself, if you want to get better and you know you have issues, and a lot of us knew we had issues, we just didn't know to what extent, you have to be willing to do something yourself. Jiu-Jitsu can be phenomenal, but if you don't show up, it's shit. It doesn't matter. It, it, you could just say, yeah, I'm going to be spinning bottles. It doesn't even matter. What the event is, if you don't go there, it doesn't matter. So the key thing to this is that we found the, the combination of we will, we will find a place for you and do all the legwork, making sure they're legit, making sure that they're able and willing to have someone that they recognize and we're letting them know ahead of time might have some, you know, mental issues. They might kind of freak out a bit, might have PTS or they're an amputee. You got to be willing you know, to work with someone that, you know, it's not just full mount. This is an entirely new algorithm now because full mount is not full mount. He only has half a leg. So that has to be defended. So there has to be like a, um, an alternative um, uh, method to the training system um, and where they can be incorporated into that. And um, we, once we actually have that, that person that we know um, or that academy that we know is able and willing to, to uh, accept them as a student, then we take that, that veteran like, okay, we have three in your area. Um, they're all approved. Which one would you like to go to? So they get a choice in that. And so they go to that place. Um, we um, uh, provide uh, two geese belt. And uh, uh, unless it's like we even had like a 10th mountain or excuse me, 10th mountain, <laughs> 10th planet um, where it's just spats. So whatever the academy, you know, requires. And, um, you know, they, they get to try it for six months. If it's, you know, if they're been maintaining their end of the bargain and they're showing up at least three times a week then uh, we extend it for another six months you know and then we give them like one year where they get to you know get to enjoy the benefits of jiu-jitsu you know while finding a a a way not the way but a way that we have found that's been very successful um you know, cope with their stresses, their daily stresses and, you know, uh, the things that haunt them and, you know, just the different things that they might be struggling with. Yeah. Last question, uh, Alan. Um, 
how can well two questions how can the gyms get into contact with you if they want to go through some sort of an approval process but also if gyms are other bite belts or school owners are listening to this what advice do you have for them that you have learned i mean you just went went into this you know and learned you you learned how to to put all this together and what to do um what advice do you have for these for other people who are wanting to help out in their communities with um, the veterans and law enforcement and stuff like that? That that's actually huge. Um, so when we first started out, there was uh, five people involved, um, and all those five people had like six hats that they wore. <clears throat> um, I was VP for five years. Um, I was the director. I was in, you know, I was assisting um, um, the uh, Royal Marine Commandos uh, set up their own system for the, the British veterans. And so now that's actually going on. It's, it's gained a huge amount of uh, uh, support momentum in England. And uh, it, theirs is called Reorg, which is just a mirror image of, of We Defy Foundation. And we're currently um, in the talks with um, um, a... Um, Australian SAS, uh, which is um, special operations for Australia, um, and getting them started in their own as well for their veterans. Um, the website itself, if you're an academy owner and like to get involved, um, we have, um, um, if you want to get uh, your school approved, um, just go on to the WeDefy, uh, WeDefyFoundation.org, and um, there's a, uh, a link where you can click on it and it has um, uh, there, we do require certain things um, like you have um, ADA approved bathrooms, things like that in case you get an amputee. So you, you can take them all. Um, and um, once we kind of get that, uh, the paperwork thing done and added to that currently, I think we have over 400 um, uh, associations now that are we defy approved. Wow. And um uh, I think we had like over 250 um, athletes that um, um, that we actually put through the program so far. And uh, it takes an average of uh, $2,000 per year per veteran. Um, so if you think about that, you know, for every seminar that we do, we get, you know, an average, you know, 3,500 um, to 5,000. So that's like two veterans you can help out, you know, for the year. So um, we have over 300 volunteers now, um, which has been incredible. We had, uh, it's always, always odd to me looking on uh, social media and then seeing, you know, we defy ambassador. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> They've been with the program for like a year, but it, it's grown so large um, that I honestly don't know everybody in there, that, which is the crazy part because we started out living with five people in the same spot. Um, I actually stepped down for um, at my uh, uh, as a VP and a board member. Uh, I'm still doing seminars, just doing more like the founder thing with Joey. Um, but it, it is it was just taking up way too much time, um, and I was getting burned out. Um, so now I, I handed that over to. Uh, uh, we have a whole new um, uh, staff that's taken over and they're doing phenomenal things. They're taking it to that next level where it needs to go. Um, so I, I couldn't be happier. Um, you know, everything's really going well. We're getting a lot more people in. 
um, were managing the uh, the wait list. It got up to like 500 people on the wait list at one point, which was just, it was horrible. Um, but we managed to, you know, fix everything and, and get everyone, you know, and to a point where they're not waiting, you know, as was before, like a couple of years. Because um, the, the program, you know, skyrocketed, but we didn't have any funds to support it. And so there, we had a lot of problems because of that. But we managed to, uh, to uh, medic, um, uh, you know, fix all those issues that we had. And, and you know, the guys that are on there right now uh, are doing just an incredible job. And best time to probably jump in because we don't have any of those issues anymore. Yeah, and so people, looking for people can um, donate on your website if they choose. Yeah. Correct, I saw. So mm -hmm. that's great. That's a hundred percent goes into, uh, you know, support the veterans. Um, so the board doesn't get paid. Um, I don't get paid. Joy doesn't get paid. Um, all the money that we make, we, we turn it back around right to them. Now there's, there's always costs. Like for example, we have to, you know, we're making geese or making rash guards. We have to pay for that of course. And then we turn around and sell them. But you know, the, uh, the overhead cost that we have is extremely minimal. Um, we're trying to keep it that way as long as we can. Fantastic. I'm going to, um, when I share this, I will include some links in the description on the YouTube videos and stuff. Uh, man, this has been a great talk, Alan. I appreciate your time. I know we've gone a little over than what I told you, um, to budget for, and we had some technical difficulties, man, but the stories are amazing. So, um, I really do appreciate you taking the time. I was looking forward to talking to you all week and um, I look forward to getting it out, sharing it with everybody. Thank you. I all appreciate right. it. Have a wonderful day. I'll reach out when I get this uploaded. Okay. Thank you so much. Right, Thank you. Take care.